Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the CAF America Radio Network, a production of the Charities Aid Foundation of America. As the leader in global giving, CAF America offers more than 20 years of experience and expertise to corporations, foundations, and individuals who wish to give internationally and with enhanced due diligence in the United States. Through its industry-leading grant management programs and philanthropic advisory services, CAF America helps donors amplify their impact. This show is dedicated to these donors and the charities they support. CAF America is uniquely positioned to serve as the bridge between these important partners and transforms vision into meaningful action. Guests on the CAF America Radio Network are leaders in their field who share tips for success and stories that inspire. Our host is Ted Hart, the CEO of the Charities Aid Foundation of America. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 914-338-0855. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at cafamerica.org. Don't forget to dial 914-338-0855. Now, welcome the host of the Cap America Radio Network, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of the Cap America Radio Network. It is uh, my pleasure uh, to welcome here to our show, uh, Kate Guinane, Director at the Charity and Security Network. Um, she's going to be discussing Cap America's new book, uh, Cross-Border Giving. Um, and uh, uh, that book, it was just uh, released in June of this year. We're very, very proud of this, uh, of this uh, program, uh, of, this, uh, of this book. And in particular, uh, Kay co-authored Chapter 8 uh, with Nancy Herzog, and that is the chapter entitled U.S. Financial Transaction Laws and Their Impact on International Grant-Making. Uh, so welcome here to uh, the CAF America Radio Network, uh, Kay Granada. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to, uh, to have you here. Before we uh, focus on the book and this really terrific and very important chapter that you co-authored, um, would you please share with our listeners a bit about your professional background and the work that you do? Um, I'd be happy to. I, I'm an attorney, and throughout my career I have focused on legal uh, advice and representation of not-for-profit organizations, uh, first representing local community organizations with their tax-exempt status and incorporation and those kinds of issues, but also getting involved in representing them on policy issues of concern to them. And in uh, after 20 years of that doing that in Kentucky, I came to D.C., uh, and in the year 2001, uh, when 9-11 happened, I was working for a government watchdog organization director of the nonprofit speech rights 
uh, department where we monitored federal government actions that would affect the rights of speech express, uh, expression association and assembly for uh, nonprofit organizations. And the Patriot Act, uh, which was passed very hastily uh, after the 9-11 attacks, included a number of provisions that were very broad and had the potential to be very damaging uh, to nonprofit operations, particularly uh, any kind of cross-border programming or grant making. And we saw over the next uh, period of time uh, implementation of these laws. It was indeed very problematic uh, and in some instances uh, has been found to be unconstitutional. Uh, so in 2008, um, I helped launch the Charity and Security Network as an uh, uh, effort across different subsectors of nonprofits to address these issues and try to proactively uh, get the U.S. government to adopt more positive uh, policy and create a more enabling environment for uh, civil society particularly those doing cross-border activities and grant-making. Uh, so mm -hmm. that was the purpose of the Charity and Security Network, and it's been nearly 10 years we've been in operation. I've had some success, some not, but I think uh, the core strategy of bringing together uh, peace builders, grant-makers, uh, humanitarian development organizations, civil liberties, faith-based, uh, other kinds of nonprofits together to share information, share strategy, uh, and um, work towards a more positive policy has overall had a positive effect. But we were uh, very happy to have the opportunity to contribute to this book and talk about the specific laws and policies that affect cross-border giving. Well, that's, I want to ask you, what were your thoughts when you first learned that CAF America was going to attempt to, uh, to put this comprehensive uh, book together on cross-border giving? Uh, it sounded overwhelming to me uh, because it's such an enormous uh, and complex topic. Uh, but I was... Uh, able to take on the chapter with the help of Nancy Herzog from the National Endowment of Democracies as co-author. And when I saw the final book, I was very pleased to see uh, how it provided a lot of substantive information in a very uh, readable and easy-to-use format. So uh, although uh, the topic may seem overwhelming at times, I think this is a good job of uh, making it practical and making it clear that this work can and can be done. It's important. Well, thank you. And, and of course, we reached out to experts like yourself uh, in bringing together this book on uh, all aspects of cross-border giving. Um, and in specific, your chapter uh, covered um, three very specific and distinct areas uh, related to the, the topic area of financial transaction laws and their impact on international grant making. Uh, can you share with us sort of the, the framework of your, your chapter and what sort of guided the, uh, the information that you shared? I'd be happy to. The, the first part, we set out the policy and political environment in which these laws 
uh, exist and function, because that uh, speaks quite a bit to how they're interpreted. Since they're very vague, the interpretation is important. What the enforcement policy has been and how that has evolved over time. Uh, and then the second part focuses on nuts and bolts of the major laws that impact uh, cross-border transactions for grant makers and nonprofit organizations. And then the third part uh, is practical tips for uh, how to operate uh, successfully and legally in this arena. And of course, all three parts really are important for anyone who's going to be a true practitioner in cross-border giving, whether that's uh, you know foundation, corporation, individual, anyone who wants to do good and be philanthropic uh, around the world outside of of the borders of uh, of the United States. Um, I, I'd like to back up from those three principles, if if I might, um, because in your chapter you you actually started out by um, uh, putting forward a risk-based approach uh, to these topics. What does it mean to have a risk-based approach? Uh, a risk-based approach, it means that you don't take a one-size-fits-all check-the-box approach to regulation uh, uh, or to due diligence and good governance, that you identify risk or terrorist financing, uh, money laundering, or other kinds of risk corruption uh, in your financial transactions, and then assess whether or not your measures are adequate to address those risks. And where you find gaps or areas that need to be strengthened, you adopt risk mitigation measures that will be effective uh, for your organization and will be proportionate to the risk, not overreact and will not unduly disrupt your activities. That's right. That's risk-based approach essentially is. Right. It has so uh, been endorsed by the Financial Action Task Force, which adopted it as a major recommendation in 2012. The Financial Action Task Force is a consortium of 35 member states, including the United States, that work together to develop standards and recommendations for country laws uh, to prevent money laundering and terrorist financing. Uh, they go around and evaluate nearly every country in the world. Over 180 countries are evaluated on how well their laws and the implementation of those laws um, conform to the FATF standards. There is a standard on nonprofit organizations uh, is included and it adopts risk-based approach. Uh, risk-based approach applies to all entities, uh, including financial institutions that are so crucial grant makers to move money to their grantees. So mm -hmm. it, it is something that both governments and uh, banks and grant makers and charities uh, are need to keep in mind in an approach to take that looks at specific risk and how to best mitigate those risks. Uh, mm -hmm. It is. And when we're, yeah, I was just going to in the uh, sort of share with you an example and ask you to uh, sort of uh, let me know if I'm sort of going down the the right path. So here at CAF America, as we remind our donors, um, getting money out of the U.S. in a regulatory um, 
uh, compliant way is really only half the story, and particularly when you talk about cross-border giving, uh, the other half of the story is getting the money into uh, the country where the charity that you're looking to support um, is, uh, is housed. Um, so let me give you an example. So um, in 2010, um, the Parliament of India um, uh, set forth the uh, Foreign uh, Contributions Regulation Act, or the FCRA. And, and in that, I guess from a, if we're looking at the policy uh, side of this, <clears throat> excuse me, was to regulate and accept the utilization of foreign contributions uh, into, uh, into India. Um, and so in putting together the law, they laid out that charities who are going to receive money from outside of India um, had to be registered with the government and had to have uh, a specific type of bank account, uh, an FCRA-approved account, uh, to accept those funds. So, that, so the legal uh, framework then comes in, into play. Um, the practical side, and this is where I wanted to sort of the risk-based um, approach and then the practical approach comes into play when uh, CAF America is, uh, grants uh, directly to charities in India you know, almost every week. Um, and what we were learning is that some charities, as we would, uh, uh, we would validate that they were approved for FCRA, but what we learned is that perhaps their banking information had not been properly registered with the government or had changed their banking information and had not updated their registration. And so as we wire money into uh, that charity um, account for the grant, um, it wouldn't get to the charity or um, the wire transfer organization would receive the money back because it would be rejected. So one of the practical applications that we've put in place um, is that we actually contact the charity ahead of time, letting them know the specifics and the details of the, the grant that is coming uh, to them so that they can double check the registration of the FCRA account um, so that we don't run into these kinds of problems. Um, and, and it's a double check on the FCRA registration as well. Would you say that's you know, sort of a, an overall sort of application of your chapter looking at, you know, understanding the policy, understanding the, the law that comes uh, uh, from that, and then a practical application uh, taking into account the risk that the charity might not receive the money. Yes, uh, that is a good example of practical adaptation to the, the kinds of measures and regulations that uh, financial institutions uh, are responding to. For, uh, Generally, responding, they are responding to government uh, laws or new rules or even informal policies and pressures. Uh, and mm -hmm. to understand what the banks are coping with and what is required of the banks as well as what is required of the nonprofits enables the parties to anticipate what might go wrong and then take measures, as you described, to help, help avoid that. We conducted a study published last year that uh, showed basically the uh, more than two-thirds of U.S. nonprofit organizations operating internationally are having problems with uh, their bank accounts. And the biggest problem is timeliness of transfers. Transfers are delayed or denied and often over confusion about uh, information and banks 
generally uh, don't make a lot of money from nonprofits, and they may decide uh, this is too much trouble if the information isn't updated or if it's uh, too much information for us to review, just going to bounce the transfer back. So the kind mm -hmm. of measure you're talking about is very helpful. It's a, it's a practical application of best practices. Uh, to make sure that the, the grant is made. So, and that and that's sort of you know part of the the understanding, as you point out, the financial transaction laws, but also what's the impact of that? Because some of the sometimes those impacts are not necessarily understood or appreciated at the time that they're put in place. Now, there's um, there's a lot of de-risking, um, and I think you were alluding to that when you talked about the the banking. Uh, the banks themselves in terms of how much effort do they want to put into even understanding the complexity or the issues around uh, moving money for uh, for charities and as they're looking to de-risk their work um, how has how has that and uh, that whole um, uh, avenue of, of thinking um, on the part of banks negatively affected charities around the world could you, you know, sort of share with us um, how um, you know our need to interact with banks um, and and their desire to not have risk um, could come into conflict. Uh, it it is a major problem for charities around the world. Our study focused on U.S. organizations. A recent study this year focused on U.K. organizations. On the 80 percent of those operating internationally were having some kind of problems. And there's an, another study from uh, Duke Law School that focused on the receiving end uh, for women's grassroots organizations in a variety of countries who are trying to receive grants and showing all the problems they're having with banks. And what it really comes down to is these, uh, the combination of uh, sanctions, prohibitions, um, and the prohibition on material support of terrorism uh, being enforced against banks in ways that have produced some fairly enormous fines over the last few years. And that has made banks very, very risk averse. So, health banks and charities are subject to the same prohibitions uh, on, on barring transactions with sanctioned entities or people and uh, criminalizing pro, uh, provision of material support. So um, uh -huh. they, they feel that uh, the regulatory agencies haven't given them clear enough guidance, and they're feeling uh, informal pressures in some cases from regulators, not bank charities who are still received under the myth that charities are high-risk customers. So uh -huh. um, that, that has really affected and where did that bank behavior. Part, part of that sort of myth that you just mentioned was born out of uh, FCRA uh, uh, or a FATF report, was it not? The the myth that nonprofits are high risk, uh, yes. in my experience, came uh, through the George W. Bush administration after 9-11, where the Treasury Department uh, started uh, enforcing anti-terrorist finance laws in a very targeted way using Patriot Act powers. And I don't think they understood the charitable sector well enough to understand the good governance and due diligence that we do. Mm -hmm. And they right. came out with some problematic 
uh, guidelines for how charities should operate. Uh, they shut down and froze the assets of nine charities and made general statements that charities are a significant source of terrorist financing, even though there's absolutely no evidence to back that up. Um, I right. think one of and the that- important things the nonprofit sector has achieved since then is to debunk this myth and to change uh, that attitude. And that's reflected right. in the Financial Action Task Force recommendation on nonprofits, pretty much written by U.S. Treasury in 2002, uh, said charities are particularly vulnerable to terrorist abuse. And the mm-hmm. lack of evidence to support that over time and advocacy by civil society globally led FATF to revise standard in 2016 and take out that language and call a risk-based approach that is proportionate and does not unduly disrupt the activities of nonprofit organizations. But that's right. And that uh, was, the uh, governments and the banks have not caught up mm-hmm. to that uh, to that view, and and the many regulations and and regulators still reflect the old view that charities are high risk. And that was uh, FATF Recommendation 8 that uh, uh, did a great deal of damage for about four years. And as you said, some governments and some banks still hold on to that uh, because uh, in, in, in some instances uh, they like the, the ability to uh, um, unduly sort of stifle um, the, the activities of nonprofits under the guise of, of uh, removing the threat of terrorist financing. Um, so, uh, uh, Kay, we're going to take a, just a very, very quick break, um, and when we come back, um, often funders who grant internationally are not only concerned with complying with IRS requirements, but your chapter describes a slew of other laws that affect funders, and I want to talk about that when we come right back after this break. Remember, right, our thanks. podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at CAFAmerica.org. If you're listening today, our phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 914-338-0855. Now, back to the Cap America Radio Network and our host, Ted Hart. And we're back here live with Kay Gwinnon and the director at the Charity and Security Network and also, uh, very importantly for us, co-author of Chapter 8, of the brand new book, Cross-Border Giving. Um, Kay, um, can you explain why international funders need to be aware of U.S. financial transaction laws? Certainly. Uh, As I said a little earlier, these laws are applicable to all U.S. uh, entities and persons subject to U.S. jurisdiction, not just charities. They're general laws meant to uh, stop terrorist financing and money laundering uh, and have been uh, enforced uh, in a somewhat don't ask, don't tell way under the Obama administration because the laws are very strict. There's no requirement that uh, anyone intend to support terrorism uh, through a transaction with a prohibited entity or uh, by providing some kind of material support, only that you know that that entity is on one of the U.S. terrorist lists. So because that threshold uh, is very strict, the government has taken a, a very flexible approach to enforcement, telling us they are not targeting legitimate organizations, they are not targeting humanitarian work, 
Um, but the potential for uh, enforcement is always there if something goes wrong. So the goal is to uh, have due diligence measures in place that are reasonable and proportionate to prevent things from going wrong. I think, but always with the understanding that in the complex environments in which grantees work, you can't always guarantee that uh, some inadvertent assistance or resource may slip through or a transaction may go through uh, that would be problematic. Um, and I think that zero tolerance approach has been specifically rejected by in public statements by the Treasury Department. And so I, I want to give that context uh, before talking about what's prohibited to help uh, understand what flexibility organizations uh, should have in mind when they're dealing with how this applies to their operations. They're basically... And again, that, well, that brings ahead. us back, I think, to... Uh, uh, to the risk-based approach, right? That, you know, what is proportional and what actions should be taken uh, to attempt to ensure uh, that funds are going to legitimate charitable purposes. That's right. And we are uh, working very hard to get the risk-based approach reflected in U.S. law, uh, not just in enforcement policy, but in the letter of the law itself. That, that is one of our primary goals. And that applies to the criminal prohibition on material support of terrorism. Uh, as I said, there's no intent standard and there's no humanitarian exemption. The only thing that is exempt uh, is medicine and religious materials. So, uh, and this is, applies to organizations on the Department of State's foreign terrorist organization list. Uh, violations are criminal offenses. It can be 20 years or more in jail plus fines. So the penalties are very, very stiff. And it includes not just tangible or financial assistance, but also each in the form of training, technical advice and assistance, uh, personnel or services. So uh, after the Supreme Court decision in 2010 in the Humanitarian Law Project case, this uh, prohibition has um, applied to some peace building activities. It may involve uh, direct transactions, as, uh, technical advice, or training, or support listed entity uh, work, trying to work with them in a peace process. And that's had the effect of inhibiting that work substantially. The mm -hmm. other area of law is sanctions. And we all see about sanctions in the news in North Korea, with Syria. Uh, places like that, but uh, there are, uh, sanctions are imposed through executive order when the president determines there's a threat to national security. And there are many mm -hmm. executive orders that apply not just to countries, but to non-state armed groups, to uh, companies, and to individuals. All of these different lists are centralized at Treasury on what they call the specially designated national list, which is searchable. Uh, and that, that is the list of entities and people that grantmakers want to check to make sure that you're not having uh, transactions with those entities. Um, right, and you have to have strong enough provisions in place. You cannot uh, sort of hide behind willful blindness on uh, things that you should know or rightfully should have uh, access to. Um, Kay, we've got less than three minutes left. I told you this uh, time would go by fast with such an important topic. 
Um, I want to make sure that our listeners know that they can find your website at charityandsecurity.org. Uh, uh, Kay Granada, thank you for being my guest here today. Before we leave, uh, could you uh, just share with us why you uh, feel that anyone involved in international grant making would want to have and should have a copy of this book? I think it's important to have because of the practical application tips that it involves. It explains why certain measures need to be taken, what, how the environment works, what the law is, but uh, it also very importantly explains uh, ways that grant makers can operate so that uh, they're not spurs or dissuaded from doing this work. Mm -hmm. Would you say uh, maybe what sets this book apart is, is exactly where your chapter uh, brought us, and that is tying together the, the legal aspects with policy, but also providing practical ways to be in compliance? Yes, and the most important point is you can be in compliance and you can do this work, and uh, people should not uh, turn away from international programming and grant making. Uh, out of fear of these laws. Well, thank you, Kay Gwinanen, Director of the Charity and Security Network, for being our guest here today on the CAF America Radio Network. Thank you for having me. The CAF America Radio Network. Tell all your friends and colleagues to check out our production schedule. Sign up for our free newsletter and download our iPad and iPod friendly podcasts at CAFAmerica.org. Thanks for listening to the CAF America Radio Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.